This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the 23rd Annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. And with us tonight is a national treasure. Jane Smiley, novelist, biographer, short story writer, essayist, Pulitzer Prize winner, lover of horses. She has a trilogy that covers a hundred years of a family's story and a farm's interaction with that story. Uh, it's just a privilege to have you with us. Thank you. Jane Smiley, welcome to the Writer's Symposium. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. So perhaps the best word I can use to describe your work is versatility. I'm sure I'm not the first person to tell you this, but when I think about it, essays and novels and short stories and biographies, varied topics, a lot of writers just pick a niche. They pick a topic, crime, you know, whatever, and they just kind of go with that forever until the end of their, uh, their, their literary life. But you've developed this ability to uh, get into all these different genres. I assume this is a conscious choice on your part to not be pigeonholed in just kind of one area? Well, I wouldn't say it was a conscious choice. It's, it was a semi-conscious choice. You know, I, I always say Uncle Bill Shakespeare taught me. And Uncle Bill, have you traced Uncle the lineage? Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay. But when I was in uh, junior high and high school, we had to read a Shakespeare play every year. And we, would, we started out with the comedies, and we ended up with King Lear. We ended up with the tragedies. And one of the things that always struck me about reading the Shakespeare plays was how he would do this, and then he would do this, and then he would do this, and then he would do this. And I also loved to read, and I loved different authors. And so there were no forms that I preferred. I, I loved all the forms. So when I was in graduate school, I took a lot of Old Icelandic, and I loved the sagas. And that was my first true experience of the epic form. And I, I really loved comedies, and I really liked tragedies. And so and I, went, and I studied medieval literature, too, and I liked romances. So it never occurred to me to stick with one form. Now, I will say that um, when I came, I, I went on a Fulbright to Iceland. When I came home from Iceland, I knew that I wanted to write The Greenlanders, and I knew that was going to be the epic. But I also knew that I had to practice in order to write that kind of a book. And you had so, to work your way up to it? Well, I had to practice plotting. I had to practice hmm. getting it organized. And... Um, and so I decided then that I was going to write in every form, but I knew that I had to prepare. And so the first few books um, were trying to figure out what to do. So in Barn Blind, I took material that I knew pretty well, and I fiddled with that to see if I could make a novel of it. And then in that Paradise Gate, I took some family material, fiddled with that, tried to make a novel of that. I decided, nah, I didn't want to write about my family. Hmm. 
Though they were receptive, they, didn't, they weren't upset about it or anything. And then I knew that I wanted to do the Greenlanders and that it was going to be really long. So I decided that I would better write a murder mystery <laughs> because that would teach me how to construct a plot. And so I wrote duplicate keys. Mm-hmm. And so I called those the practice novels. And I had a lot of fun. And the great thing about doing practice novels in, in my day was that... Yes, they got published, but no, they weren't any big sensations. So I could try stuff out, and then publication and a couple of reviews constituted a little pat on the head. And so I could keep going. And there was nothing either saying to me, oh, this is so fabulous, you got to keep writing. No, there wasn't that. Hmm. But then there was also sufficient success so that I could keep going and enjoy it. And that uh, that was my biggest piece of luck, I think. Yeah, I've, I've never thought of it that way, where, where what you're working on at the time, you might be fully committed to it, but you also know this isn't, this isn't the big thing I'm headed toward. This is Well, I, I knew the Greenlanders was the big thing I was yeah. headed toward, and I didn't know what was going to come after that, but mm. that was sufficient to sort of keep me moving forward um, for those first, sure. say, 10 years. Well, because, though, of your ability to write in all of these different uh, areas, the New York Times said that your ability to master all genres drives other writers crazy. <laughs> well, that's We're what, a jealous bunch, that's Jane. That's what Charles McGrath said. I don't, he did. That's what he said. I'm yeah. not sure that it's... He, I'm not sure that he took a poll or anything. All right. Well, maybe it just drove him <laughs> crazy. So I apologize for driving anybody crazy. I wouldn't want to do that. Well, so let's focus for a while on what you, what you do the most, which is writing novels. Mm-hmm. So you said that the only prerequisite, this is from your 13 ways, right? Yeah. And I think you know where I'm going. Yeah. The only prerequisite for writing novel is the desire to write a novel. Yes. But, I, I mean, that seems kind of obvious, but... You go on to say, and the only, it's the only thing that overcomes all of the handicaps to writing that novel, which uh-huh. are, do you, want, do you know the list by heart? Or do you want me no, to read you it can, I don't know the list by heart. I'm okay. interested to hear it. So, so these, these are all the <laughs> handicaps to writing a novel. Perfectionism, low self-esteem, depression, alcoholism. Diseases of all kinds. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, immense riches, uh, economic hardship, deadly enemies, resistance of relatives and friends, laziness, retarded professional development, <laughs> the regular responsibilities of adulthood, and even imprisonment. <laughs> Those are, the, those are the handicaps. Well, those and are some s- of the handicaps, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some of the handicaps. And you're saying the desire to write a novel is what overcomes those You can overcome that. I mean, I came up with this set of handicaps because, and, I'm, and we're thinking handicap in terms of like a horse race, where the horses are, have to carry a certain weight owing to how much they've won before. So some horses in the race are carrying more weight and some horses in the race are carrying less weight. And it's supposed to even out the field. So I'm thinking of those kind of handicaps, not like physical handicaps. You're not looking at them as impediments, necessarily. Um, well, they can be impediments, but, that, but desire is what... The, this feeling of desire, this 
and for me, that's a sense of curiosity. That's the thing that overcomes what is holding you back. And I have to say, for me, the thing that's holding me back is always laziness. And it, and Wait I'm a second. You've written dozens. <laughs> you've written more than, than, than a library could hold. And you're saying you deal with laziness? I do deal with laziness. But it's not laziness about just writing. It's laziness about everything. Okay. And so, my, I, so I, talk, I always say there's, there's laziness and there's addiction. And laziness is where, yeah, you don't want to do it. And you're not going to do it. And why should I do it? And then you go do it, and you feel great afterwards. Addiction is where you say, oh, I want to do it, I want to do it, I want to do it. And then you do it, and you feel terrible afterwards. Interesting. And so it's better to be lazy than addicted. <laughs> <laughs> now, That's carried you this but far, let's hasn't say, it? But there are people who love, who want to write and want to write and, and can't stop themselves from writing, um, but then they're dissatisfied with what it is they wrote. And one of the things, one of my other um, quotes from 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel is that every first draft is perfect because it never existed before. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing you have to tell yourself when you are working on the first draft of any book. You have to just get to the end. Because I've known so many writers who had lots of talents and skills, but as they were going along, they'd think, oh, this chapter is a piece of I can't, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing with my blah, 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 blah. So there, a friend of mine said it was the committee talking to you, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Um, Stephen King calls them the boys in the basement. Yeah. yeah. And so one of the things you have to learn to do is just ignore that and just keep going. Because you don't know as you're writing what part is really good and what part isn't good. You, but when you go, when you finish and you come back after a few months and read it over again, the reader brain, the brain that's read all these books, um, way more books than you'll ever write, kicks in and says, oh, that's working. Oh, that's working. Nah, that doesn't work. I need to fix that. Nah, that but it's much, the reader brain is, is not as judgmental mm-hmm. as the writer brain. And it's also more knowledgeable. So hmm. you have to just get through that rough draft, put it aside, and let the reader brain take over um, as you work on the later drafts. This is really interesting because one of the things in writing classes that I teach, and I would be interested in, in if you have the same experience teaching writing, that um, that is the big problem is... Um, Students think that the first draft that they turn in has to be really superb, so they just labor and labor and labor, and, and I'm just saying, no, just blast it out. So do you, do you see that, that sort well, of perfectionism? My students have to, turn in draft, have to turn in three drafts in three weeks and then go on to the next story and turn in three drafts and turn in three drafts of the third story. And so they know it doesn't have to be, per, doesn't have to be perfect the first okay. week. And then, but I don't, I tell them from the beginning, you can't say to your fellow students, I like this or I don't like this or this doesn't work or this isn't working or whatever. You have to ask questions and be analytical. So when they show us the first draft, the goal for me um, is to get them to talk in a way that will make the writer 
himself or herself totally interested in this and want to play with it and come up with ideas about what's next Mm -hmm. and be excited to go back and rewrite it for next week and not to be afraid of what the other students are saying. And I've been teaching that way for a really long time, and it's, it's really worked. Good. So, so back, to, back to your novel writing, you started out, I think you said, wanting to communicate a certain truth in, or a certain story when you were first uh, writing your novels. And it was, so it was kind of you dictating, this is the story I want to tell. But then later on in your work, it was, it was a little more, you would show up and say, okay, what's, what's going to happen next? <laughs> well, you do learn to be more open. I mean, I, I think there are two kinds of writers at least. And one of them is that they have a story um, about their own lives that, or about their own, yeah, about their own lives that they don't understand. And so they invol- get involved in writing about it in order to come to an understanding about it. And, and when they come to the understanding about it, in some ways, they don't know what to do next. There are other writers who write out of curiosity, not of their, about their own lives, but just because they see things and they hear things and they get curious about them. One of my favorites of... Uh, we could, take, we could take Charles Dickens and Anthony Trollope as an example. Two of your literary heroes. Yeah. And Dickens clearly had several childhood issues that he kept moving toward and moving toward and moving toward and finally dealt with um, in David Copperfield. But it took him a long time to get there because he was very secretive about the embarrassments that were his childhood. Hmm. Um, Trollope wasn't like that. He, he, as far as we know, he didn't write about his childhood. Um, and when he, got, when he got to Ireland to work for the English post office, he was um, motivated to write by two things. One was curiosity about Ireland, which he didn't know much about, but he was traveling all over Ireland to work for the post office. And the other one was the habit of telling himself stories to keep himself entertained as he was riding around. And so he got very interested in um, Ireland, and he wrote the McDermott's of Ballycloran and the Kellys and the O'Kellys. They were absolute busts. I think the Kellys and the O'Kellys sold eight copies. Wow. And wow. it's one of my favorite books. I adore the Kellys and the O'Kellys. You're, you've got one of the eight copies. I wish I did, oh, but okay. no, I just have a paperback. Right. But um, then when he, but those were his practice novels, um, similar to mine. And so then when he had learned how to make them, he, he was in Salisbury and um, walking around Salisbury Cathedral. And that's where he came up with the idea of the Warden, which was the first volume of the Barchester series. So by the time he got famous, um, he was un, he still kept his job. He still kept doing things mm-hmm. the way he did them. And he just sort of moved smoothly along. Dickens was much more rattled hmm. by um, his fame and much more, he had to screw around with his books much more 
in order to make them work by the time he, between the time he was 24 and published the Pickwick Papers and the time, say, he was 30. So who do you most align with? I'm, I'm more Trollope in terms of what I'm interested in and um, what I explore. He always, he always seemed to explore what he looked, saw yeah. and what he was curious about. But you, you've had these different kinds of experiences in writing novels where at one stage of your writing life, you're, you're the one who's, this is the idea I'm exploring. But you've also had some experiences where it was like you received a story. Well, I've had that one experience. All right. But that, that, that's big. This is Greenlanders, That was a right? big one. Yeah. It, I knew that I was going to write the Greenlanders because I really wanted to. I'd read a lot of Icelandic sagas. I'd taken Old Norse, I'd taken Old English. I was fascinated. I'd been to Iceland, and I was fascinated by... And also, I grew up during the Cold War, so I thought the end of the world was immediate, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I heard about the Greenland colony, the Norse Greenland colony, where the end of the world had happened. And I had to explore that. Mm -hmm. But I also knew it was going to be a really big deal, so I had to practice to right. get there. Right. So one of the things when you're writing a historical novel that you have to decide is, is my style going to imitate old, that style of that period, or is it going to be a sort of straightforward um, modern style and maybe imitate the dialect mm -hmm. in the dialogue? Um, and I went back and forth about that, and my, my model was the, the Kristen Lavren's daughter by, um, yeah, Sigrid Unset. Um, and she, she imitated the Norse style, mm -hmm. and I found that involving, and I also knew that I'd, read, I'd read and translated so many sagas that I could give it a go, you mm -hmm. know? And, but my experience was I fiddled around, fiddled around, fiddled around. The first 50 pages, I, I tried my best. I rewrote them and rewrote them. And then once it clicked, we were off. Hmm. And, it, and it really was like being, um, having the story come to me from, before, from afar. It was like I, I wrote it on my first computer. And I would sit down, and it was like pulling the bearskin rug over my shoulders and just going into it. And it was a very uncanny experience. Well, didn't you also sense that the characters were saying to you, thank you for resurrecting us? Thank you for telling us, uh, telling the, our story? No. <laughs> they, really? I didn't feel that they had any, any actual gratitude. Who no. am I thinking about? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you said that at some point. So, no, I never would have ever said, they can't feel gratitude. Why would they feel gratitude? They're Greenlanders. They're Excellent point. <laughs> Excellent point. I, did, I do remember I got, uh, you know, those were the days where you sometimes got a letter from somebody. And at the end of the Greenlanders, um, the main character uh, feels remorse. And I got an enraged letter from a guy who'd read it all the way to the end. And um, he could not believe that I had allowed or invited a, 
a Norse character to feel remorse. <laughs> and then I looked at the uh, return address, and he lived in a mental institution. <laughs> so he was kind of obsessive. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Got to be careful of those letters that you get. Um, do you think it's uh, universally uh, part of the human experience to be a storyteller? I hope so. You know, I, it, it seems to be because as soon as you have language and as soon as you have a sense of the difference between the present and the past, then you're going to start communicating about things that have happened. And then as soon as you communicate about things that have happened, you're going to, be, you're going to start having doubts about how it happened, why it happened, and whether it happened. And then bingo, you're going to start telling stories. Um, just to keep, to keep the attention of the person that you're talking to. So it does seem to be narrating stories, telling stories, making a narrative of out of events seems to be an inherent human So we're hardwired to do it. Well, language makes us do it. Are we hardwired to speak? Yeah. Are we hardwired to make sentences? Yeah. I would say so. So the next step is anecdotes, and the next step after that is stories. Do you think everybody has a story to tell just because they have language? As long as they desire to tell it. They don't desire to tell it. They don't have a story to tell. But the thing that makes... Okay, so imagine that... Um, you're reading one, a, a set of those hack novels, uh, those hack murder mystery novels um, that they used to write in the 30s. I used to have one that I bought uh, that was an old horse racing murder mystery novel, and the cover had a sort of semi-dressed woman and a couple of guns, and, the, and it was set on the horse racing track, and it was called win, lose, or die. <laughs> but if you were writing those, if you're reading a bunch of those hack novels and you are used to them, you can tell that different writers have written them, even though they have the same name of the person who um, hmm. employs them to write it. Because they pay attention to different things. They, they're, they plot it in slightly different ways. They focus on slightly different motives. And so in my experience of reading, um, the, the, the thing that every novel has, every novelist has is idiosyncrasy. What you really have to make sure to get into your novel is not who you are, but whether you can make the story gripping or not. And um, so I, I think for, for decades, authors are forever, authors, authors have been saying to themselves, oh, I want to be original, I want to be original. You are original. What you want to be is compelling. And the originality comes with the, with What's the, difference? the story. Well, you can be compelling and nonsensical. I mean, you can be original and nonsensical at the same time. You can be original and not know how to form the story and make it work. 
and, and keep track of the characters and all of that. You can, you can be original. Mm-hmm. And still, and the reader's going to be scratching her head and saying, boy, I don't understand this at all. Yeah. Hand me a book. This, the, reader, the reader's greatest the reader's greatest right and privilege when he or she is reading a book is to say, this is bullshit, toss it aside. Mm-hmm. And the writer has to know that. The writer has to know that the reader can always look away. And so the writer has to draw the reader in in some way. Yeah, you, you've got this great line where you said, what is difficult is not to write something new. This is precisely what you were just saying. Yeah but to write something interesting and true. So, True in the eyes of the reader. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you to explain. What do you mean by that? So, so the, the, the reader just has to be able to suspend his or her disbelief yeah. to go with you. Yes. I mean, I think you have to be true to yourself and true to your own imagination. And there's a lot of ways to do that. For example, if I decide I'm going to write... Um, Let's say I decided I was going to rewrite King Lear. Hmm. Let's just say I was decided. What an idea. Um, But when I I finally decided that I could do that, that that I had that spark of inspiration, the spark of inspiration was about setting. The setting that inspired me was a place in northern Iowa called the Pothole Prairie. And we were driving south on I-35 from Minneapolis. And it was late in the afternoon and in about March or sometime, some damp, dark, depressing right, time right, of year. Right. And I remember we were driving along and I was looking around and I said, I wasn't driving, thank God. I was looking around, he was driving. I said, you know, this is where I should set that Lear book. And bingo, there it, was. it all came to me. And what came to me was the setting. I knew what the Pothole Prairie was. The Pothole Prairie had been a, um, a big, marshy, swampy area. Um, and, and farmers from eastern England who were familiar, because they were from Norfolk, they were familiar with swamps. And so they came and they drained it. And of course, they, it was incredibly fertile, this land. Mm-hmm. But they didn't realized that within 50 years there would be a lot of pesticides and that the pesticides would be running from the land down through the drainage, um, the drainage wells and mm-hmm. then into the groundwater and then mm-hmm. back up to them. Sure. So they didn't realize that and they just couldn't believe the fertility that they found there. So they became wealthy in a way that maybe people over by... Sioux City didn't immediately become. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was the inspiration, and then everything sort of popped out from that inspiration. You know, that story I, I thought was so intriguing. We were talking about 1,000 acres, um, which, for which you won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, but you tell it from one of the daughter's points of view. Well, when I said this is where I'm going to set that Lear novel, I was talking about, I'd, I'd known for years that I wanted the daughters, Goneril and Reagan, to say what their side of the story was. 
because I remember even from the first time I read King Lear in high school, I was annoyed that they didn't get to say anything. And, and Lear just kept babbling on and on and on and complain, <laughs> complain, 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 complain. Now, I came from a St. Louis family. In St. Louis, we didn't complain. You had a fight or you made a joke, but you didn't go blah, 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 even if you were the patriarch in the family. And so, um, so I wasn't used to that. I, la- I later realized that, yeah, Uncle Bill had to do that because um, it was on stage. Mm-hmm. And so how were the characters going to express their inner lives except by talking? But, you know, it took me a really long time to put that together. And, um, and one of the things I always loved about the novel was that the novelist, whoever it was, you know, could Jane Austen or Charles Dickens or George Eliot could go into the mind of the character without the character having to talk. And there's a great moment in Dickens' um, career where he does that, and it's in Dombey and Son, which is, uh, I love the Dombey and Son. And there's a character in Dombey and Son whose name is Mr. Carker, the manager. And... He never says anything, and he's always smiling. And so the people around him don't know what he's planning. And that was the first Dickens novel where he realized that he could go into the mind of Mr. Carker, the manager, and tell the reader what, the, what he was thinking without Mr. Carker saying what he was thinking. Hmm. And if you go back... Um, even a few years before that to um, Justine by the Marquis de Sade. The, all the people who, who Justine meets up with and who torture her and who torture lots of other people, de Sade hasn't figured out how to go into their minds and say why they're doing it. So they're always blabbering on to Justine about why they do this and why they do that and why they're corrupt and why they're going to torture her to death, mm-hmm. you know. You think the real torture for her would be just shut up? <laughs> yeah, just listening to all that. <laughs> but, but that's because Desaad hadn't figured out that particular way of telling the story. And right around the 1830s, people, you know, um, European novelists began to realize that's how to do it, and and that pushed the novel into mm-hmm. another realm. So let's let's keep going with your uh, with with your work uh, for a minute. You you have made some of your novels so complicated with the uh, the characters that even you had to create charts. Well, I, I didn't create the charts. The publisher created the charts. No, I'm saying for you to even keep track. I th- I thought you would put like. Uh, oh. here, well, I kept a chart in Moo. Because Moo is the one that takes place at a land-grant university. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I wanted to talk about a lot of people in the mm-hmm. university. Um, the thing I had to keep track of was, were, the, were they showing up enough? So the chart I made was a grid with the number of the chapters across the top and the names of the characters down the side. And all I did was, if they showed up in a particular chapter, I would check off the ones who showed up. And then I would look at the grid and see who was missing. And then I also knew that every so often, I had to have a lot of them, so there had to be a party. 
So they had to show up at a party. But for example, with the last 100 years trilogy, mm -hmm. um, I never got any of them mixed up. I knew that the reader would and that the publisher knew that the reader would. But for me, they, it was like members of your family. Why would you ever get any of them mixed up? They're so weird um, mm -hmm. and so, so much themselves. You know, in, in that 100-year trilogy, you describe uh, a baby. I think the character is Frank. Yeah, Frank's the first baby, yeah. You describe him in this... You're, it's almost like you're in his head, Good. but but then watching him develop and grow up, it, it, I, it makes total sense what you just said. Of course, he wouldn't lose track because yeah. the, the, he was consistent all the way through. But I I was just really admiring your ability to describe how a baby acts and reacts. And but I had three babies. You know, and that, and I'll never forget my um, when the when the second one was born, and the doctor put her in my arms. I knew instantly that she was different from the first one, just by the way that she relaxed. The first one remained this kind of self-contained package, and um, and she was she continues to be self-contained to, to this day. And so she was four years old when the, when the second one was born. They were both girls. And so I, I knew the first one really well, and then the doctor handed me the second one, and I said, this is a different, this is a different kid. Different experience. And she was completely different. And in, in all the things, it didn't matter what baby books I was reading, None of them said, okay, they're born with an inherent temperament, they're born with an inherent way of being, a way of inherent way of perceiving the world, and you have to take that into consideration. They just said, train her this way, train her that way, train her this way, train her that way. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't work. Um, and so that was part of the inspiration for starting with Frank's infancy because I wanted to show the difference between Frank and the, um, the brothers and sisters. Yeah, everybody else. Yeah. So one of the things that I noticed in, in your novels that is, I think, fairly consistent throughout is almost always what crumbles is... A good marriage. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> there are there are some marriages. So name in... a good marriage that crumbles. Well, Thousand Acres. I mean the uh, the the main character. Jenny. Yeah. Okay. You don't you don't think sleeping with Jess contributes to something, and then her moving away. <laughs> that's not a crumbling marriage. But, but you know, this, this happens throughout your novels. Well, I've had many a crumbling marriage. All right, right. But I mean, I, I, the, the last hundred years is dedicated to my four husbands. Yeah, all of your husbands, exactly. <laughs> I was going to bring that up eventually, but uh, thanks. Um, yeah, all of your husbands. Uh, and then you've got this, you've got this line that uh, 
it, but it isn't just about marriage. It's about families in, in, in general that I just thought was so um, disturbing. Uh, where, where it says, uh, when, when the main character, when my father asserted his point of view, mine vanished. Not even I could remember it. I've seen a lot of families like that. And, and What's that from? Thousand Acres. Okay, so I, I always say about a thousand acres, Uncle Bill told me to do it. So that line... This is Shakespeare's fault? <laughs> that, uh, yeah, Uncle Bill Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. That line, all of the stuff, my, my goal in a thousand acres when I set out to do it was to adhere to the plot of King Lear as closely as I could and still make it plausible in, in our day, which meant I did, there couldn't be a war. So I decided, because it was Iowa, there also couldn't be a gun battle, and there would have to be legal stuff. Mm-hmm. That was the only way. That I, I tried very hard to make that the only way that I veered away from the play. Um, at one point, I did lose track of what I was supposed to be doing. I had to go back about half an act and, um, and follow it and make it adhere to the play. But that was my game. Um, but the question, if I was going to talk about everything from Goneril and Reagan's point of view, especially Goneril's point of view, then I had to filter the play and Larry and, and, and Lear through Ginny's mind. Mm-hmm. And I figured if, if Lear was the king, and given the way he acts in the play, that he was probably pretty domineering the whole time they were growing up. Um, and not only the episodes of incest that are mm-hmm. included, but just his attitude was, was to tell them what to do and to make sure they did it. And yeah, we all, everybody my age knew somebody who had those parents. Right. I didn't have those parents, but everybody knew somebody who did. Okay. The very authoritar- mm-hmm. authoritative parents. And so the lines in there aren't meant to be my thinking. They're meant to be Ginny's, or especially Ginny, but sometimes um, Rose's thinking. Okay. Too. But, but your own father, the essay you wrote... Um, about your father, mm-hmm. where he has PTSD, uh, not very present. Uh, well, he wasn't present at all. Exactly. Uh, Thank God. I mean, well, okay, he, why? Why? Well, my father was. Um, uh, I think he, he had PTSD. I don't. I don't know that he had PTSD, but I think he was schizophrenic. Um, or else he had, what's that other disease that they call? Bipolar? Bipolar disorder. And it was evident, my mother and he lived in L.A., and my family lived in St. Louis, and his family lived in Michigan. And it was evident from a short time after my birth to my grandmother who came for a visit to see me, but increasingly to my mother, that he, he was hearing voices and he was... Um, uh, not understanding what he was supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And um, so finally they, they came back. They were going to go from L.A. to Michigan 
to see his family. And they got as far as Wyoming, and, and he couldn't drive anymore because he was hearing the voices so much. And so my mother um, took me back to St. Louis to live with her parents, and then she went back and forth between St. Louis and Michigan to see if something could be done. But he came, and I had a, a talk with um, some of his nieces and nephews a few years ago, cousins of mine on, the, on his side. And they said everybody in the family was crazy. That there, and there was a, large, a start, strong authoritarian streak hmm. um, in the family. And so when I look back on that, I think the best thing that ever happened to me was that I got to live with my mother's family which had their moments, but were generally good-natured and affectionate and, um, and uh, funny and, mm-hmm. and playful um, instead of living with the crazy sure. ones. So, well, yeah, that's what I, all I wanted to say in that essay. The, the es- but that essay was just so moving um, where, where you, you show that uh, your mother had aspirations to be a writer, Mm-hmm. In this essay, you say, but uh, he told her that writing was for second-rate minds. His ideal piece of written work exactly. was the Army Field Manual. <laughs> right. Nothing could measure up to that, is right. what he said. And it's, I mean, she told me this. He didn't tell mm-hmm. me this. But it was because it was very organized. He didn't see the novel or literature as a thing that was organized and precise. And that probably fits in with his mental issues because he could find, maybe, maybe, I don't know, but maybe he could find, get, find himself getting lost in emotions when he's reading a novel. And you can't get lost in emotions when you're reading the Army Field Manual. <laughs> the Army Manual. Field Manual. But he went to West Point. But he, he, he didn't do well in the Army, but... That was he, he aspired to do well in the army. I, I, in in your, the way you were raised, I, uh, you've got this really interesting perspective where, where you said that his absence and your mother's distraction freed you from being raised with a lot of preconceptions. And then, then you've got this is a direct quote from something you wrote Sometimes from the outside, my work and my life looked daring but I'm not a daring person. I, th- I think in, as a writer, I think you were pretty daring. Well, but why not? You're sitting in your office. <laughs> You're playing around with your materials. You have things going through your mind. And you want to try this and you want to try that. And it's so much fun to play around with it. And so you just try it. And the, the sense of pleasure in creating whatever it is gets in the way of worrying, oh, my God, what's it, you know. And, you know, some of the books appear daring from the outside, like 10 Days in the Hills, which is based on... Completely different kind of wor- <laughs> novel of yours. And that's based because after 9-11, I decided I was going to read a lot of books from a long time ago to get my mind away from 9-11. So the first one I read was The Tale of Genji, um, which was a 1,000 years old. I figured, what could be farther away from um, 9-11 than this, except that it was all about the ephemerality of existence. 
And so I thought, oh dear, okay, I'll try something else. So then I picked up the Decameron, which I'd heard of but never read, by Giovanni Boccaccio. Oh my goodness, it's set in the Black Death. And this was around the time that um, those envelopes were going around with the the anthrax anthrax envelopes were going around. And so there was a lot of anxiety about that. And here are these 10 people outside of Florence in the middle of the Black Death trying to distract themselves from what's happening all around them. I thought, that's really, that's really fascinating. And I loved sort of the exuberance of the stories. And I loved the fact that Boccaccio had taken a lot of the stories from the Hitto Padesha, which, is, which was actually um, Indian rather than European, and so then I was casting around for the next one, and I'd never heard of this one before. And it was the Heptameron by Marguerite of Navarre. I didn't even know who Marguerite of Navarre was, though I'd heard of her brother, Francois I. And so I started reading the Heptameron, and I was absolutely captivated because she had decided, she and her friends were stuck in Coteray in the Pyrenees in a spa, mm-hmm. And, and they couldn't get out because of floods. And so she decided she was going to rewrite the Decameron, which was, you know, 20, 200 years old now. Mm-hmm. And so she rewrote it as the Heptameron. And she said, my two favorite rules for telling a bunch of stories. And the first rule was every story had to be true. And the second rule, which, so, so it had to be gossip. It had to be about the people they knew. And the second rule was... It had to be about, every story had to be about whether a young woman could know true love and retain her virtue. And so they, they collected, they told, I don't know how many stories they told, but 73 stories were collected, which is why it's called the Heptameron. And some were f- funny and some were scary and some were interesting, and then they talked a lot about the stories after they were finished telling them, much more than they had in Boccaccio. And that was because the Counter-Reformation had come along. The Reformation, the Counter-Reformation had come along. And so they um, had learned to investigate their own ideas and thoughts and feelings a little more. And so at the end of the Heptameron, they decided, no, a young woman could not know true love and virtue at the same time. And then about 100 years later, one of the next books I read... This is all post-9-11 reading. Yeah. One of the next books I read was The Princess of Cleves by Madame de Lafayette, which is still a book they read in French schools. And the great thing about that is that she knew about the heptameron, and she decided she was going to solve the riddle. And so she solved the riddle. The virtue riddle? Yes. Riddle? She, yeah. get, she got the woman to know true love but still retain her virtue but in a very characteristic way sort of 16th seven, excuse me 17th century way and as soon as i read all those books i thought the novel is really interesting as a historical form as a form where it asks the reader to look within where it says to the reader you have an inner life and the more that you read about other people's inner lives than the bigger your inner life gets. So finally, when you get to a book like Orlando um, by Virginia Woolf, um, 
she has, Orlando has such, who, who goes back and forth over the years and between male and female, and that character has a huge inner life. And there's nothing that ever stops her from saying, from paying attention to her own inner life or his own inner life and enjoying it. And that, to me, is what the novel is for. It's for cultivating a child's inner life mm-hmm. so that when the child is sitting, you know, she's sitting there minding her manners, but she's looking at the family saying, God, this is ridiculous. <laughs> she's keeping her face straight, but she's saying, And I'm going to write a book about it. (laughs) But, but, But did that, reading all of those really deep and historical works, did that help you in some way uh, get through the the trauma of 9-11? Well, it inspired me. I mean, how did we get through the trauma of 9-11? For a lot of writers, um, the thing that they were working on when 9-11 happened made whatever... 9-11 made whatever they're working on just look tiny and worthless. Mm -hmm. And so for me to go and read all those other books and to understand the events that those authors had lived through, Mm -hmm. um, it put 9-11 in perspective. Really, I'm going to say to Giovanni Boccaccio, well, 9-11 is more important than the Black Death. No. Hmm. You know, so... Reading how all of those other authors had processed the, the worlds that they lived in and the, the traumas that they lived through was very helpful to me. And I got more excited and interested the more that I read them. I didn't set out to write 13 ways, but I started reading those books and I just had to, I had to do it because mm-hmm. it was so interesting. Well, and even before you get to your summaries of those novels, the first part of 13 Ways is some of the best writing advice I've ever read. It was just really, really um, helpful and, and clear. In there, though, you, you make some mention of having some sort of a spiritual awakening or some sort of a crisis or whatever. Did that help or hurt your writing? Well, it helped. What happened was I found my current husband, and he was a follower of A Course in Miracles. And I didn't grow up in a religious family, and I'd never been a follower of anything. Um, But he really liked it. So I thought, okay, cooking him dinner is only going to go so far. (laughs) If he's really into this, I'll I'll see what I... And The Course of Miracles was like a... Has anybody heard of A Course in Miracles? Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you explain to him what it is. <laughs> no, I, I know what it is. I just, I, I mean, I, I hadn't until I read your reference to oh, it. Okay. And so I went back and, and read up on what it, what it was. But so it helped you. Well, we read, I, we read there's, you start out, there's a bunch of lessons. And then there's a kind of rewriting of the Bible that mm-hmm. is The Course in Miracles. And... Um, and, when, and when you first open it, you think, this is a bunch of gobbledygook, just gobbledygook. Mm-hmm. And, and then, but, you, it, but you, as you get into it, certain things seem, seem true. And one of the things that has st- stuck with me all these years is one of the principles of the Course, which is I give everything all the meaning that it has for me. 
And that's a novelist's precept if ever there was one. Mm-hmm. Because that's my job as a mm-hmm. novelist, to, give, to take the world around me and give it meaning and put it on the page. Mm-hmm. So I accepted that. Um, and we would do the lessons. And I thought some of the other stuff was interesting, too. Um, for example, there's a, there's a part about what was Jesus actually doing when Jesus was being crucified. Well, the real Jesus was standing across the hillside um, watching the illusionary Jesus be crucified because this world is an illusion. That's a Course in Miracles precept. Mm-hmm. Um, and after we'd been doing it for about together, and it worked, um, and I'm not going to say whether the Course worked better than giving him dinner a lot, but they worked to get, they melded together mm-hmm. perfectly. Um, then... So I I finally thought, well, okay, maybe I can participate in this sort of religion thing after having no religion in my life. And and then they started having these huge arguments about who owned the text and who got the money. And I thought, there they go. Yep, just killed it. Just killed it. They're being like all those other religions. It's about who, who says the right thing and who gets the money. So let's, let's wrap this up this way. Thinking about um, the, the advice you gave in 13 Ways, uh, not everybody's going to read that book. So let's distill your best writing advice for the people in the audience and the people who are going to be watching this. Okay. <laughs> there, are, there are some people who wanna know, I want to know, I, I want to write, and I want to write better. What do you tell them? Well, 13 Ways is about writing, writing novels. Right. But there's, but there's some bigger things that you can apply to just writing in general in there. Well, I guess the main thing is, first of all, you have to be good with language. You have to know how to punctuate. You have to know how to write the sentence. You have to know how to spell. Because it's like a, if you can't, if you aren't good with language and don't teach yourself to be good with language then all these little mistakes are like a little pebble in your shoe. They'll make the whole thing much more of an effort than, than you want it to be. But what if you're not good at those things? Then you have to practice and learn. Okay. You have to practice and learn because the, there's a pyramid in 13 ways. And this is the pyramid of the novel. And the bottom layer of the pyramid is language, and that's where the door is. And you have to be able to walk in that door and be at ease in there. Now, the best way, one of the best ways is to read, 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 read. When you're reading, you become much better at writing, too, because you, you, the language goes into you and comes mm-hmm. out. Read anything? Anything. Graphic novels? The Bobsy Twins. Anything. Bobsy Twins, okay. <laughs> um, the other thing that you have to have is is patience. You have to train yourself to be patient with yourself and know that your main job is to just finish this novel. Once you finish the novel or whatever the book is that you're going to write and toss it out into the world, you don't know what's going to happen to it. You hope something good is going to happen to it. But in my class today at UC Riverside, I'm teaching an immigrant novel class, and the novel we were reading today was the, warrior, um, 
The Woman Warrior by Maxine Hahn Kingston, which I quite enjoy. But one of the things we talked about for most of our session was the reaction in the Chinese American community when the book came out. And the reaction was very negative because they felt that um, Maxine Hahn Kingston had kowtowed to American ideas of what it should mean to be Chinese. Hmm. And that's often true in immigrant communities where you read, a lot, a lot of books are more popular out in the world than they are with the community that um, the woman or the man is a part of who's mm -hmm. writing them. So you have to be patient. So I'm sure that Maxine Hong Kingston had no idea she's going to be such a huge, big deal. And then I'm sure afterwards she thought, hmm, I wonder if that was okay to be such a huge, big deal. Um, but you have no control over that. So you have to send it out and then turn away from it and go on to the next thing. And then my, my third piece of advice is you have to find pleasure in the process, which means that putting together the plot, putting together the characters, putting together, looking around, putting the setting on the page, mm -hmm. those things have to please you. And you have to enjoy those because those are the only lasting pleasures. Every, every award you get, every book review you get, it's gone. Hmm. But if you sit down at your desk every day and you get involved, even the book that I had the hardest time with, the one where I decided I was going to commit suicide so that they would publish it. <laughs> <laughs> and That's, I'm only half You can only joking. do that once. I'm only half joking. But when I, when I would sit, I, I had real problems with it. And when I would sit down and go over it, I would feel frustrated. But I couldn't help myself. I would feel fascinated by how I'm going to fix this, how I'm going to fix this, how am I going to make it right. And I couldn't keep myself away from it. And so that, that turned out to be a pleasure a frustrating pleasure, but also a pleasure, because I just couldn't leave it alone. Which book was it? I'm not telling. Oh, come on. <laughs> All right. We're going to end with the mystery. Jane Smiley, <laughs> thank you for being with us. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.